Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, 69 to 27, verse 2, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Denying Jesus Before Men. You and I, if we know Christ and if we love him, we also seek to acknowledge him before others. I mean, you might be out at a restaurant or coffee shop and, you know, before you eat your food, what do you do? You bow your head, you give thanks to the Father in the name of Christ the Lord, and you do so knowing that others are watching. Our daily bread is not something we take for granted. And furthermore, he is gracious to us, and we seek to give him thanks, and doing it publicly, being seen by others, is not a moment for embarrassment, not for us. We're delighted there are others who see us acknowledging our Savior. And of course, not everyone is open to the gospel, but some are. And as we, whether, you know, it's a part of our you know, wider family or whether it's at work or among people, you know, with whom we share a hobby or some activity, no matter the circumstances, if we love Christ our Savior, we're not ashamed of Christ our Savior. But the reverse can happen. You know, sometimes students in a secular university, especially those who are subjected to the hostility of a professor, you know, seek to mock them. I mean, they might feel tempted to put their heads down and just keep quiet. Don't let your professor see that Bible in your backpack or let your fellow students know about your faith. At least that can be the temptation. Well, that same thing might also be true of the professor who's a Christian. Even though others mock his faith, he or she simply steers clear of the subject matter. I mean, why ruffle feathers? And one has to wonder about those believers who live in countries where the practice of their faith is illegal. You know, or for those who, when accused of proselytizing, might be subject to prosecution of some kind. It would not be wise to openly proselytize when criminal charges would ensue. But believers in many of those countries have found ways to be faithful. They found ways to identify with Jesus and his church, even when there's considerable pressure placed on them to remain quiet about their faith. And for me, being proud of Jesus takes a number of forms. I frequently, when I have a conversation with a wide variety of people, I express my wish that God would bless their lives. I I love to simply slide in a story of how Christ has cared for me and my gratefulness to him. You know, even though I've not always done so, I ask my Savior never to allow me to be ashamed of him. You know, if you're a believer, I hope you do that as well. I would have said that Simon Peter, while he was following Jesus, did that as well. And there was a moment, John tells us about it in John chapter 6, when Jesus was teaching on a matter that didn't sit well with a number of his followers, that some of them no longer followed him. And when Jesus addressed the 12, John records it in John 6, 68 to 69, and Peter takes the leadership. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That was one of Peter's high moments. Even when it gets difficult, or even when things you teach are difficult to understand, or when others are offended by what you've said, you know, I come back to my bedrock, he says. No one else has the words of eternal life, and for that reason, I'm staying put with you. And from that, we can draw a conclusion. Even though the world should forsake us, or when it mocks us or threatens us, we will continue to stand with Christ, for he alone has the words that unlock the door to eternity. We will not deny his name. Are you a courageous man or woman? I don't know if you are. 
Indeed, I'm not sure if I am. We all have fears. Is your commitment to stand with Jesus greater than your fears? Now, Peter's denial of Jesus was a great failure. And this story, although I have to assume that he might have been happy to keep his failure a secret, it's been openly told in the church for 2,000 years. And truth, I've heard this story told and retold since my childhood. You know, in most cases, it gets told as an act of cowardice, a cowardice we must all avoid. That's fair enough. Peter denied Christ because he was intimidated and afraid. And we're going to look at those details in just a moment, but it should also be remembered that the other disciples, the ones who didn't deny Christ, those men had already run away. And Peter, well, he demonstrated courage by remaining as close to Jesus for as long as he was able to do so. I suppose we might say, that the greater our willingness to stand with Jesus, regardless of the cost, the greater then is our fall should we fail in our resolve. Uh, Those cowards who have never dared to stand with Christ in an exceptional hour will never be charged with the same kind of failure as Peter, for they never had Peter's love for Christ. Remember that as we go through our study, you know, with great love and great zeal comes the possibility of an observed public collapse. And in that, we might wonder if it's worth it all. Well, let's begin our study. Remember, there are three denials, and we'll consider each one as it occurred, a separate event, but each event compounded on the last one, making the next failure all the more easy. So I'm reading Matthew 26, 69 to 70. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Now, we've noticed that Matthew often gives us a very shortened version of the events. Now, Matthew simply says that Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And John, in his part, tells us how both he and Peter entered the courtyard. So let's review that part of the story. John 18, 15 to 16. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now this servant girl who admitted Peter would have known at that very moment that Peter, along with John, were disciples of Jesus. And I, I, for my part, suspect that she was up to some sort of mischief. I personally think she had no reason to ask Peter, but as the tension around the trial of Jesus was rising, she must have decided, you know, for reasons that are never really discussed in the Bible, that she would out Peter. She was, if you were, going to make matters very uncomfortable for him. And another matter, both Mark and Matthew only include her most basic statement. You also were with Jesus the Galilean, but Luke says that she was observing Peter. He was sitting in the light of the fire, and there were a number of others who were also in the light of that same fire. Who were they? Well, my feeling is that they were very likely a part of the arresting team. That is, they arrested Jesus, and now they're hanging out to find out if the prisoner needed to be restrained again or if he needed to be transported. And Luke then says, she looked at Peter closely. And again, we we weren't there, but it is curious. I mean, did she walk right up to him? Did she stare into his face? Luke says she said, you also were one of them. So I have no difficulty putting those two statements together. She's acting very cheekily, stares at him directly in front of others, 
you also were with Jesus the Galilean, and you also were one of them. She said both things. John, who tells us of this account, says that in the end, and here I suspect, you know, Peter was silent, but she puts it into a question. Come on, she says, answer the question. Are you with him or not? And clearly there was no way Peter could get out of this. And in the moment, he's frozen in fear. I mean, perhaps you know that kind of fear. Fear that is so great that in that moment, all courage vanishes in a split second, and you don't have the time to recall the courage again. I mean, it's left, it's gone. And so he answers, I don't know what you mean. And that's Peter's first denial. So let's read about the second. That's found in Matthew 26, 71 to 72. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. I'll get to that matter of the emphatic second denial, the one that comes with an oath in just a bit. But before I do, I want you to notice the obvious experience of everyone. Once you've lied once, you're caught in a trap. You, you feel you have to just keep on lying. Now, I recently listened to an interview with a man who was under investigation for a crime. In his initial interview with the authorities, he had been caught in a lie and he denied he was anywhere near the crime scene. And once he denied it once, then the police continued to push him so that having lied once, he's forced to lie a second time and then over and over and over again. And the man in the interview said, in a short period of time, I was portrayed as a serial liar. In that moment, all my credibility vanished. And indeed, he was a serial liar. See, it's a problem about lying. It's a trap. And now Peter's in it. Now, in the way in which we read Matthew, it might seem like his second denial happened immediately after the first one. But John, in his account of this, in John 18, it seems to indicate that some time elapsed between the first and second denial. But that gives us an even greater insight into this. Peter might have thought that after so adamantly denying Jesus the first time that he had gotten away with it, Now, when he's asked a second time, he feels duty-bound to carry on in this denial. Oh, what a horrible moment for Peter. Few verses encapsulate the message of the gospel better than John 3.16. It's been memorized, put on posters, painted at the front of churches, and even waved from end zones at football games. But perhaps you've never heard an exposition of this great verse as in-depth as the one Dr. John offers in his new five-message series, John 3.16. With two hours of audio dedicated to unpacking exactly what each component of this verse means for the believer, I think this series may just completely enhance and renew your appreciation for the depth of truth found in this verse. To that end, Back to the Bible Canada is offering the John 3.16 series on CD for free during the month of March. So take advantage of this limited time offer and call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your free CD series today. In Matthew's accounting of this event, Peter has gotten up from the fire, and then he went out to the entrance where he had come in. Was he trying to get out of there? Well, I personally don't think so. I think he was determined not to desert Jesus. But I think he also wants to go somewhere. 
where he's out of view of others. He just wants to disappear into an obscure place. But it's right there at the entrance. Whoever was there, another servant girl asks the same question. Did the first servant girl tell the second one? Well, that's possible. So Peter is caught in a lie, and now he's forced to lie again. And this girl, at least so it would seem, is just as adamant as the last one. And Matthew's careful to tell us that the girl was not only speaking with Peter, but that she's also speaking directly to the bystanders who are there. And Luke, who tells us this story, says that one of the bystanders actually chimed in at this moment. He said, yes, indeed, you are indeed one of them. And having been identified twice now, Peter feels something more direct and dramatic than a simple denial is called for, and so he invokes an oath. We don't know what kind of oath he used. We do know that earlier on in the ministry of Jesus that Jesus actually spoke about the matter of the abuse of oaths. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned about the constant abuse of oaths that had become so prevalent in that time period. You might remember what Jesus said. Do not take an oath, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for the earth is his footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You see, in Jesus' day, there were a series of oaths that people took that either bound them to a contract or were used as a stipulation that something that they had said was indeed the truth. You know, think about this practice in our day. You know, in a court of law, we use an oath, which is a means whereby a witness is warned of the consequences that should befall them if they don't tell the truth. And in everyday speech, although it's rare to hear people invoke an oath today, still I have noticed how often a person will say something like, honestly, before they say something, or not a word of a lie, something like that. And have you ever wondered if someone prefaces the words with honestly before they speak, are they signaling then that when they speak at other times, they may not be honest at all, but on this occasion they are. Do you see what this matter does? prefacing our speech with an oath doesn't reinforce the truthfulness of our words at all. Rather, it exposes how easily we all become liars. And that's why Jesus taught his followers to simply say yes or no, that everything else comes from the evil one. Lies come from the evil one. And Peter right now is lying and he invokes an oath. But there's one matter we must not miss on this point. I think we must consider that while Peter has invoked an oath in order to cover up his lie, Jesus was on the inside at that very moment being tried by a smaller group of the Sanhedrin. And as things were heating up, the high priest Caiaphas has said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is, he places Jesus under an oath and demands that Jesus answer. And in the case of Jesus, Even though he knows his answer is going to cost him his life, he confesses the truth. And in Peter's case, you know, it's hard to know what it would have cost him, and yet his oath is so different than the oath that Jesus is under. I suppose if we had asked Peter, what would Jesus do, he would have known. But now Peter's locked into lying. What a lesson that is for all of us. How much easier it would have been for Peter to be truthful from the beginning. Yeah, I lied before. He could have said, I was afraid. I'm not going to lie again. But Peter seems incapable of taking an off-ramp right now. So we continue to read Matthew 26, 73 to 74. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. 
And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Luke tells us that about an hour passed between Peter's second and his final denial. A whole hour. We're not told what Peter did during that hour, but it's enough time for him to reconsider what he's done. He could have prayed to ask God to restore his courage so that he would never lie again. Or it may have been that now that things had settled down, Peter could regain his confidence, perhaps the time in which people were identifying him, you know, as dying down. I mean, we don't know what he was thinking, but we can be sure that he had not resolved his moral failure. A whole hour, and still he had no way of dealing with this moral dilemma. And yet we have to imagine that his determination not to desert Jesus, that determination remained. He had not run away, at least not yet. He would prove that he was a faithful follower of Jesus. In his own mind, he determined to stay. Matthew says the bystander came to him, someone else it would seem, who had heard the previous denials. He thinks something's wrong here, and he's not going to stand for this anymore. Perhaps the man was a Roman soldier, a man who has sniffed out lies before. He says to Peter, you can't deny it. Your accent gives you away. And that means, of course, that Peter was from Galilee and his accent was so different from the people of Jerusalem. And furthermore, the majority of Jesus' followers were all from Galilee. No, this guy's Galilean accent, that's no coincidence, this man says. All his denials are not going to suffice. This man, whatever he's doing here, must have something to do with helping Jesus. And that smells like trouble and it's time to out this man. So having become more adamant during his second denial, Peter now takes the matter to a crescendo. He pulls out all the stops, wants to lie one more time. Matthew says at this moment, Peter invoked a curse on himself. Most likely by now, he's calling on God to strike him dead if he's lying. But not only is Peter lying by invoking God, but he's emphatic. I don't know the man, he says. I adamantly deny not only that I'm not one of his disciples, but I've never even had contact with him ever. I've never heard him teach. I've never seen him do miracles. I was not there when he drove out the demons from the pigs and when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. I know nothing of his claims to forgive sins or to grant eternal life. I deny I've ever met him. And then something wonderful happens. God is so very merciful, even to those who take the sacred name in vain. Suddenly, grace breaks through the web of lies, and in this case, coinciding with Peter's third denial, is the crow of the rooster. And with that crow, the trance is broken. Matthew 26, 75. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I say this is a moment of grace because while he denies he knows nothing about Jesus at all, God gives him a sign that he knows everything about Jesus. And he surely knows that Jesus told him that he was not the courageous, faithful follower that he always imagined himself to be. Before the rooster crows, Jesus said, signaling the morning light, you will already denied me three times. Well, Peter's resolve to stay close to Jesus is broken. His courage is gone. He runs away, as the others have already done. But his weeping bears a greater intensity than the other men had known. His failure is ever so much more intense. You know, I think we do well to talk about what we should do when we sin. 1 John 1.8 says that if we say to ourselves we have no sin, 
then the truth is not in us, and we make God out to be a liar. I see what a horrible thing it is to deny that we sin. You know, I've known some, you know, very, in quote, spiritual people who have told me they hardly ever sin, or, or they even say they never do. I once knew a man, you know, a very good speaker, by the way, who told me that he goes on for months and months and never sins once. And Paul said the very opposite of that. He said, I am the chief of sinners. That's what the great apostle called himself. Don't hide your sin. But with that comes 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, it's always wise to say, don't begin to lie. Practice being a truth teller. Tell the truth even when it hurts. Tell the truth even if it means that you will suffer for doing so. For anyone telling the truth will find that they are doing the work of God. But on the other hand, if we lie and if we've sinned against God, it's not the end of the matter. We can still go to God in repentance and we can still call out to him for mercy. We can turn from the lie and we can turn to grace and we can turn to truth. See, these are the things that we learn from this passage. May they be ours in abundance. Thanks for your message, John. I'm wondering, how do we encourage God's people to be confident in who they are, even when being a Christian might not be popular? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to come to terms with, uh, first of all, deeply valuing Jesus. I mean, some of us are going to have to be very honest with ourselves and say to ourselves, I have valued the favor of others. I value looking good within the culture. I value my own reputation. You know, and those are fine. I mean, we can, we can value all of that, but everything has to fit in a hierarchy. And unless we've trained ourselves to want Jesus and his glory more than anything else, I mean, I think we're always going to get trapped in that same loop. So we're going to have to say, Lord, I have not desired you as I should. Change my heart, O God. And I, I think that's the place we need to pray. Help me to love Christ above all other things. I mean, if the world turns against me, but Christ's favor is upon me, would that not be good enough? I mean, may that be true of all of us. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every day we hear from listeners across the country, and your words of encouragement mean so much. Mason recently wrote, I really appreciate that you teach the Bible, straightforward, no mincing of words, as it is, and so informative. You know, we're grateful for messages just like these, but they only happen because of your generous support to help extend this program's reach across the nation to resource Canadians with trustworthy Bible teaching. It's a privilege to stand with like-minded and like-hearted individuals who share the steadfast commitment to see others engaged in a dynamic relationship with Jesus, grounded in biblical truth. Your donations are absolutely pivotal in fulfilling Back to the Bible Canada's mission, and we're so blessed by your partnership. To give today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.